Okay, so welcome to, I don't know what we're going to call this. <laughs> we can't keep on having little subgenres, or, or can we? I guess we can do whatever Fireside we want. Fireside chats. Fireside chat. What are we going to do? Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? Oh, a campfire. Well, isn't that all snug and comfy? <laughs> fire, no good. No. You know, I think part of uh, the joy of doing this podcast is having interviews with people and mm. talking about their interesting work. Um, but th there's also other things we want to talk about that also feels perhaps intrusive to bring into the context of other people's work. Yeah. You know, so, for example, talking, starting off talking about the Israel-Gaza conflict um, mm. when we're interviewing somebody or talking with somebody about their own research just puts perhaps their, their work or their things in a context that maybe they don't really want to have, um, you know, associated with their work. Um, not associated in a bad way, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, for instance, I guess something that we do want to talk about as well, um, the way that in the past month or so, a couple of important people within the bioethics communities that we're part of have uh, died, um, you know, th thinking of Henry Killam uh, and uh, Professor Miles Little, who was the founder of the Centre for Values, Ethics and Law in Medicine, where we both uh, did our PhDs. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I unfortunately wasn't able to attend any of the memorial events um, mm. for Miles uh, that were held in Sydney, but Jane... You yep. There? I have I've been to two. Um one was a one was a really lovely gathering of I guess ex Valimers, um, who all I suppose remembered a particular side of Miles, um, or had a, a particular shared experience of of Miles's um sort of personal and professional and academic input. Um, and the other was on uh, Friday, the mm -hmm. Miles Little uh, lecture, which was really excellent. We heard from uh, Professor Marie Toombs talking about uh, mental health and suicide prevention in Indigenous communities. Um, mm. Really, really a terrific morning, actually. So, yes, uh, both Miles and Henry will be hugely missed and they both made really important contributions yeah. to the field yeah and I was fortunate enough to interview both of them for my mm. history of bioethics project um Henry Killam who people some people may be less familiar with he was um you know really instrumental in developing sort of pedi pediatric ethics um and was also involved in the NHNMRC's National Health and Medical Research Council development of um, ethics and resource allocation in healthcare. So Henry was um, maybe not as uh, yeah, prominent as Miles in the, the ethics community, but certainly has uh, shaped the ethical conversations and the sort of, I guess, ethical infrastructures of Australia uh, around um, that. And he, in the interview as well, just in the years of him practicing medicine, uh, and and being a student, I guess, in the I'm probably going to get these dates 
wrong, but, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, just the way things had changed a lot in relation to, um, I guess, the professionalisation of ethics and had an interesting conversation with him about how in those in that period doctors did certain things with no guidance and uh and that had some flexibilities and advantages to it um in a sense that there were some times when they would practice things like euthanasia um without sort of explicit laws or regulations around that but that they were often in positions and he he you know talked about an early, early experience of caring for and looking after someone with severe burns that you know was he you know was still quite moved by that and just how hopeless and horrendous the situation was and how lacking in any kind of guidance as to mm. sort of medicate uh sort of end of life options and um yeah so henry and miles were always around vellum and always uh conversation was something that both of them greatly enjoyed um there's a special issue of the journal of biophysical inquiry that is talking about miles little's legacy uh, prior to his death that was published and he was able to read that and that's good uh, i have a piece in that but there are many others um that we will link to in some way mm. um yeah i don't know did you have anything further you wanted to say about no i was i was trying to think of a um oh i suppose i i really appreciated their willingness and openness to chat to people who didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were both very generous, um, generous people who were really interested in talking about ideas and mm. giving people the space to try things out, which um, isn't always easy to come by. And it shows, I think, a real uh, a sort of generosity of spirit that is sometimes missing. Mm. Yeah, and I guess the other thing that uh, I've been wanting to mention is, or, you know, in the lead up to this is coming up to the year anniversary since uh, the death of Courtney. Um, mm. And, you know, I think at the time I had mentioned that we would do some kind of episode or thing on um, suicide and grief. Uh, at this stage, I, I don't I haven't felt sort of uh, in a place to do that, I guess. But um, I think grief is something that I've been thinking a lot more about um, both in this context, but also in teaching uh, the philosophy of love, sex and death to first year mm. students. I think grief was missing in the module on death. And I think that's an interesting area where some philosophers are starting to write about grief. Um, Judith Butler had already been writing about grief uh, in terms of grievability and what bodies and what whose lives are grievable. It's quite mm. explicable, uh, relevant now in the context of the current wars. Um, mm. But also, I think in an episode that we're going to, that we've already recorded, but will be coming out um, on Friday, uh, talking about grief in relation to infertility and um, child loss is another, mm. uh, or miscarriage is another um, interesting component of grief uh, that is often lived in silence. So some things that we may try to tackle in the future. Yeah. 
when the time is right, mm-hmm. <laughs> if there is ever a right time. But <laughs> you did just do a really uh, gentle but lovely segue <laughs> into the Middle East, Chris. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, we're not a current affairs show, as most people would know, uh, but it's hard to ignore um, mm. some things that are going on. And I think in particular when there is not only the humanitarian crises that come with wars and conflicts, um, but also the uh, effect on medical communities and medical and the delivery of medicine in that context. So, you know, obviously the um, the attacks by Hamas on the 7th of October on uh, the Israeli communities were horrendous and, and um, awful and the cost of life there... Um, you know, uh, unspeakable, but the medical community and the medical infrastructure was there to treat Mm. wounded, whereas what's coming out of happening in Gaza in relation to medical infrastructure and medical communities is that not only are they having to um, treat and care for a huge number of wounded um, and those wounds, some of which are horrific in terms of burnings and limbs lost and and these sorts of terrible, terrible situations. Uh, But the medical infrastructure is increasingly deteriorating um, and there are less and less um, trained medical Mm. staff and personnel who themselves are also victims of um, this conflict in losing family members um, but needing to work in the same time as as that's going on and it seems like ever diminishing physical space for them to be able to provide care as Mm. well so it's um it's coming from all directions really that 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 minimization of being able to provide medical care yeah, and I think, um, you know, neither of us are expert in this area and we're not here to tell people things that they don't uh, perhaps can't already know in relation to, you know, what's being reported by the media, but some things that are un- being underreported uh, I think are worth sort of drawing attention to. So some people may have heard of Ghassan Abu Sitar, who's a uh, British-Palestinian surgeon. He... Um, he has been working in Gaza, well, between Britain and Gaza, I think since the late 1980s. He was there as a medical student um, in 1987 uh, during the conflict that was happening then uh, and has been going back ever since to, I guess, particularly, you know, being, I think he's a a reconstructive surgeon. Um, so he's there right now. And there's an interview that I have shared via Twitter, um, but just an excerpt from that, I think, just gives a, an account of the conditions that he and others are working for. So the interviewer asks him, what is the status of the medical staff in terms of the exhaustion of working long hours and under such harsh conditions? How much of the medical staff are local and how much of it belong to international organisations or aid groups and charities? And he responds, People are just not physically exhausted. We have been doing 16 hours a day since this war started, if not more. 
they are emotionally exhausted, the scenes that they see, but also we've lost so many members of staff. We've had 40 doctors killed, 18 nurses, and a lot of my colleagues have lost family. Almost all of them have had to move their families from their homes. Three of them lost their homes when the buildings that they live in were targeted. People are just completely spent. There are no foreign staff. The, there, there is Medicine Sans Frontieres. Uh, I'm with MSF. There's MSF local staff still left. One of the doctors who was killed, Dr. Medat Saddam, uh, or Satan, uh, he's a plastic surgeon and a colleague in this department. I'd worked with him in 2009 war and in 2014, and he was a lovely, lovely man. He was working that day and his sister evacuated and came here. He just took her to his house where he thought she'd be safe. And that's uh, when the house was hit. Before that, I was doing surgery on the remaining child of an obstetrician at Schiffer Hospital who was killed with her other daughter. Her husband is in Jordan on work. Mm. So the situation clearly, you know, is is very grim uh, and impossible for, uh, seemingly impossible for these, the medical staff working there. Um, yeah. And I think as people who are interested in the ethics and politics uh, and history of healthcare, uh, we can't ignore what's going on, uh, but also it's hard to know quite what else to do. I mean, I think it would be great to see health organisations uh, giving their voice to ceasefires. Um, mm. I don't know what something like the Australian Medical Association has said, but they're historically are quite a conservative organisation, so I wouldn't be expecting too much from them. But, um, you know, UNICEF and Medicine Sans Frontieres, obviously, and others have been calling for ceasefires. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's fairly safe to assume that if the Australian government can't support a ceasefire, then um, the AMA is unlikely to mm. do so. Um, so how would you respond to somebody who doesn't have any um, any sympathy, I suppose, or, or doesn't have any, doesn't see a way to morally support um, Palestinian people um, right now? Well, I don't know if there's really much of a way to respond to somebody who, I, I think if you can't, if you can't see the humanity of others and empathise with their suffering um, and see the injustice of their suffering, um, then I don't think there's any kind of argument that's going to convince people of that. Now, obviously, some people would say that they're not, there isn't an injustice going on or that it's, you know, maybe they'd say it's collateral damage um, yeah. to use that. I don't know, even know if that's a euphemism. It's such a disgusting um, description. Um, so, yeah, I think that there would be not a lot that can be said, um, which I think comes back to what I mentioned in relation to Judith Butler and grievable bodies like and grievable lives. Can we grieve for the lives of um, people who 
we may see is wholly other to us. I don't, but though some people may. Um, so yeah, I think that in response to those sorts of positions, um, it's it's difficult really to cut through because yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. No, I get it. I don't want to be like, oh, this is too hard, but it's really hard. It's hard to talk about. It's hard mm. to um it's interesting in its sort of reflexivity. I find myself personally um thinking about what I want to say in terms of the imagined position that my that the person I'm talking to has. Mm-hmm. Um and that's a that's that's a really weird one. Um, I guess it was interesting to me uh, when so I lived in Singapore from 2018, 2019. Um, our neighbours were uh, Israeli mm-hmm. and um, they their kids had all been born overseas um, and they, you know, they're expats working for international companies but their oldest kids were about to graduate from high school um and so they had decided to move the family back to israel so that the kids could do their military service having but they'd never the kids had never lived in israel Mm. um and i was sort of confused by that and she said, well, they can't be israeli if they don't do their military service it doesn't make any sense at all that they they need it's the most important thing for them to do, which is uh, for somebody who hasn't grown up with any of those sorts of commitments just is a an impossible thing to imagine. But I asked her a whole lot of questions um, about the Middle East conflict because it's something that I've never understood because everybody has always said, oh, it's too hard, it's too complicated, it's too, you know, X, and I've never engaged with it. And she said a whole lot of things that um, I frankly, still don't really understand. Mm -hmm. Um, But the conviction with which she said them has just made everything, if possible, more confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, And if, yeah, so this is is going absolutely nowhere, this comment from me, (laughs) except for that it's, hard and it's I don't live it and yeah yeah I mean I think the conviction like what you were saying about the conviction uh, I think it's a good way of putting it I mean ideology is another but some people feel I, I say that in a sort of neutral sense I'm not saying ideology in a um you know a pejorative way but I think people that for some people it does come down to these underlying commitments and beliefs um that are not changed by persuasive argument or statistics and i for me i think it's a i feel that there's a similarity with say uh gun control in the us um or or the the state of that debate um Mm -hmm. and it's also i find unpredictable as well in like when i was living in the us some people who i would think you know would be all for you know, sensible gun restrictions, you make some comment and then before you know it, you've sort of uh, 
kick the hornet's nest, so to speak, um, because they are those deeply held beliefs uh, and commitments. Fully. And so the there is that similarity. There's obviously that. a difference to it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, that's not to say that people can't be changed. I mean, for me, I I try to listen to the voices of people who have experienced um, on both sides the the violence and being part of the say the Israeli mechanisms of um, uh, war. So um, there's a there's a group on Instagram. I mean, the beyond called Breaking the Silence, which are former Israeli Defense Force. Some of them volunteer or not volunteers. Some of them the low level recruits, like what you were the ones who have done military service, but right up to higher higher people who have served in the Israeli Defence Force and have then, uh, you know, they're breaking the silence in that they're talking about the things that they have seen and done and the rationales for it. I think those voices or the voices of the doctors and health professionals on both sides as well, um, the, you know, many Israeli human rights lawyers um, who are advocating for um, the upholding of human rights for Palestinians um, are as well helpful to to listen to. Um, but, yeah, I think there are long-held... Uh, so I guess someone who, as I mean, this is a bit tangential, but I do think gets to that conversation that you were referring to earlier about religion. There's a guy called Gary Burge who whose work I have found particularly formative in my own thinking about this. He's a Christian theologian from the US, from Wheaton College, um, who talks about his own experience of, you know, the US, particularly US Christians, have a longstanding um, love and commitment to Israel for a variety of theologically misguided reasons. Um, and he talks about his experiences of his... Uh, thoughts sh shaping and shifting in the context of working in Israel and in Palestine. Uh, and he wrote a book, Whose Land, Whose Promise, What Christians Haven't Been Told About Israel-Palestine. Um, but he, in an interview in a different podcast, a different one to ours, <laughs> we haven't interviewed him, he talked about um, his experience of living and working with Palestinians and Israelis and how both of them are shaped and formed by a deep fear um, and that for both of them that fear has is not imaginary you know they have both experienced um, you know horrific crimes uh, against them and so they are both fearing a repetition of mm. of those in different ways um and and he sort of suggests that until that fear can be overcome um that any kind of lasting peace or solution is is not likely mm. um, so yeah mm. uh. but i think for for people who are not um, Israeli or Jewish uh, or 
or Palestinian, I think it's important, I guess, to acknowledge that fear. Um, yeah. And again, in a in a not in a in a full sense, like that there there is and there have been things to be feared. So, yeah, I, I don't think you know we're obviously not going to have uh, any kind of profound insights that you can't hear or read elsewhere. Um, but I do think you know we do appreciate what we have in the, in the context of this podcast and the conversations that we have with people uh, around it, both obviously in in the podcast when we interview people but more than that when we talk with people either via email or um, in person I think that silences uh, we're not going to talk about everything but there are some things that we do need to talk about and I think that with um, what's going on with particularly medical and healthcare workers and the calls from medical and health organizations around what's happening in Israel and Gaza uh, is something that we wanted to mention, um, as well as, yeah, remembering um, the lives of uh, Henry, Miles, and mm. um, a year since Courtney's passing, or death, I should say. She always wanted the D words. So Yeah. Um, but, yes, later this week, a new episode will be dropping on infertility.